Okay, I'm going to make you work a little bit uh, tonight. I want to ask you a question, um, and uh, it's kind of an experiment. I'm trying to, to probe your thinking here, and uh, so I'm looking for a one-word answer. All right, I just want a one-word answer. Um, and there are several very, very good one-word answers to the question I'm about to ask. But what is this book about? So, pardon me? Jesus is an excellent answer. It's a very good answer. Um, any others? Life. Pardon me? Life. Who said that? What did you say? Life. That's the answer I was looking for. Uh, obviously, obviously, uh, you know what? I'll be honest with you. I didn't think I'd get it. Um, I just don't, sometimes I don't think we think in those terms. When you ask about what the Bible's about, you, you think God, Jesus, salvation, grace, mercy, the cross, the gospel. You think about a lot of things, right? A lot of things come to your mind. But what I want to say to you is, and thank you, Don, one, one of the first things that should come to our mind is that God is offering life. He's giving away life. Not just any life. He's giving away life. God-sized life. I, I appreciate that, Don. Uh, eternal and infinite. And, and you know, it's not... When you ask people about eternal life... Okay, let me ask you this. When you think of eternal life, what do you think of? One word, two words, three words. Heaven, God... Pardon me? No death, yes. Joy, life. That's right. Don's right. She's right. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times you talk to Christians about eternal life, and they just think, well, that means I'm going to live a long time. But friends, it's four-dimensional. It's not just length. It's breadth and height and depth. And it starts right here. It starts right now when we come to Jesus. And this is the kind of life that God is giving away. I'm not talking about brain waves and a pulse. That's not the kind of life I'm talking about. I'm talking about the born again, begotten of God, born from above, soulish, regenerate life. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis vividly highlights this distinction. He talks about brain waves and a pulse. He calls it bios life, right? That's easy for us to understand. It's just the biology of it. But he, he, he makes a distinction here. He calls the life that God offers, he calls it zoe. He calls it zoe life. And then he says this. Bios life has, to be sure, a certain shadowy resemblance to zoe life. But only the sort of resemblance there is between a photograph and a place, or a statue, and a man. A man who has changed from having merely bios life to having zoe life would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a man. You hear what he's saying? I love this distinction he's drawing. Then he says this, that's precisely what Christianity is all about. The world is a great sculptor's shop, and some of us are coming to life. I love, I love that imagery that C.S. Lewis draws there between bios life and zoe life. The Bible, thank you, Don, it's about life. And listen, you need to have that in your thinking. 
You need to have that in your thinking. Um, that, that needs to be one of the first concepts that comes to your mind when you begin to talk to unbelievers about the message of the Bible. I love the imagery uh, that the Scripture uses when it's talking about this life. Just listen to a couple of examples here as you go through the Scriptures. It talks about the breath of life. The Bible talks about the tree of life, the path of life, the fountain of life, the springs of life, the way of life, the well of life, the statutes of life, the bread of life, the word of life, the book of life, the promise of life, the crown of life, the river of water of life. What is the Bible about? It's about God turning stones into living beings. It's about God ripping out that heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh giving life to His people through the finished work of His awesome Son. We know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ says about Himself. Uh, John 1, 1 and 4, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 4, And in Him was life. Very good. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. life. John 11.25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they might have life and that they might have it. Listen, friends, God means for you to be living huge. He means Christianity is not religion. We say it all the time. It's not, it's not religion. It's life. <laughs> and God means for His people to live it huge. What does abundant mean? I love words. I love synonyms. I looked at some of the synonyms for abundant. It means to abound, to be bountiful, to, to be copious, to be generous. I love this one. Inexhaustible. We have an inexhaustible stream of life flowing through us from the Father. Uh, ample life, limitless, lavish, bountiful, plenteous. Does that describe your life? Does that describe your, your spiritual life? Your Christian walk. I love how the Living Bible paraphrases Jesus' words in John 10.10. 10. Listen to it. It says, Jesus says, My purpose is to give them life in all its fullness. Don't you love that? You know, God hasn't come to just give us a little bit of life. He's come to give us a God-sized life. And guess what? He expects us to live like we have God-sized life. We're not supposed to be afraid and have anxiety and wring our hands like the rest of the world. We're the sons and daughters of the sovereign king and creator of the universe. And God expects us to live like that when we wake up in the morning. And when, when we have difficulties, God expects us to live like our warrior king shepherd's going to rescue us. Doesn't mean we don't have hard times temporally, but ultimately, He is a warrior. He is a king. He is a savior. He always delivers his people. Jesus Christ never doesn't deliver his people. You've got to love that about him. He gives us a life that really matters every single moment of every single day. Do you know that, friend? Your life matters every single moment of every single day. And he also gives us a life that matters every single moment forever. Amen? It matters forever. I love this aspect to the, to the gospel, this, uh, this life that we have. Unbelievers have brain waves and a pulse, but they do not have this kind of life. They do not have the kind of life that God gives. In what may be six of the most sobering words in all of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, 
Paul says that unbelievers are excluded from the life of God. That is a sobering, sobering text. They are excluded from the life of God. So whereas those who reject Christ are excluded from the life of God, those who are in Christ are exhorted to lay hold of it and make good use of it. Let me ask you, Christian friend, are you making good use of the eternal life that God has given you? This is what Paul told Timothy over in uh, 1 Timothy 6.12. Paul said, fight the good fight, young man, right? Fight the good fight. Lay hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. This is a proactive thing. We're not passively religious. That's not Christianity. We lay hold with purpose and determination to live the life, the big life, the God-sized life that God has called us to. That's biblical Christianity. That's biblical Christianity. I love how the message paraphrases uh, 1 Timothy 6.12. Run hard, run fast in the faith, seize the eternal life, the life you were called to. You know the Latin, right? Carpe diem. What does it mean? That's what you're supposed to do as a Christian. Seize the day today. You may not have tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. You may not have tomorrow. God says, live it big today. That's all you have. You have right now. You know, Satan likes, to, Satan likes to get us living in the past or he likes to get us living off in the future. That's all we have right now is now. That's all we have. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says that's where eternity intersects time. Right now. Right now. Seize the day, Christian friend. Seize the day and live your faith large for the glory of Jesus. And these are the thoughts that were filling my mind as I, I read the first eight verses of the uh, Paul's letter to uh, the Colossians. The Colossians understood the gospel. And if you notice in those first eight verses, they were living the gospel. So that's the challenge for you and me tonight. Are you living the gospel? Are you living the gospel? Laying hold of the God-sized life that He has given to you through the finished work of His Son. So before we look at the text, I just want to give you a brief introduction to the book of Colossians. Uh, Paul wrote this uh, book while he was in prison in Rome around 60 A.D. Um, uh, Colossae was an a, a ancient uh, commercial center about 100 miles east of Ephesus in what is uh, the modern nation uh, that we know today called Turkey. Paul had, as far as we know, Paul had never been to Colossae, uh, but the church was planted while Paul was in Ephesus for three years doing ministry by, you heard, the, you heard Greg read the guy's name, his name is Epaphras. Epaphras meant, uh, uh, planted this church apparently, and he's mentioned in verse 7 of our text tonight. So why does the Holy Spirit prompt Paul to write this letter? As in the case of so many New Testament books, uh, the Holy Spirit is confronting heresy. And so, again, we see this over and over and over in the New Testament. There's a peculiar blend of Jewish legalism, pagan, mes uh, uh, pagan mysticism, and an early form of Gnosticism developing in the church in Colossae. Some of the Jewish legalists says Christ, Christ is not enough. You've got to do... Jewish ceremony. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to do the rites. 
Paul's going to say, no, that's wrong. The uh, Gnostics were saying that, that Christ alone is not enough for salvation. You need the superior knowledge, the higher knowledge, the secret knowledge. And we have it, and we'll give it to you. Christ is not enough. Paul's going to say, wrong. Christ is all you need. The pagans were saying, uh, Christ uh, alone is not enough. You've got to have mystical and ecstatic experiences. And they love to worship angels. And Paul's going to say, wrong. Christ is enough. Christ is enough for your salvation. So the Holy Spirit is refuting these add-ons to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Salvation, we're Protestants. This was the rallying call of, of the Protestant Reformation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen? That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what we believe. And this is the uh, defense that Paul is going to make in this great little letter to the church of Colossae. If your gospel is an add-on gospel, you don't have a biblical gospel anymore. If, if your gospel says, well, you've got to have some ritual added, you've got to have some sacrament added, you've got to have some experience added, some ceremony added, some religious activity added as a prerequisite to being saved, you no longer have the biblical gospel. You have a different gospel. And this is one of the things that Paul is going to combat in this short letter, beloved, Satan loves to attack the pure, simple gospel of uh, salvation in Christ alone. Satan loves to attack it. And it's the spirit of Antichrist that creates these pseudo-gospels and these false expressions of Christianity that we see in the world. These different Gospels. And what did Paul say about a man who preaches a Gospel different than what we find in the Bible? What does Paul say about that guy? Paul says what? Let him be accursed. Now that's pretty strong. But anybody that tampers with the Gospel, friends, uh, God takes that serious. And Paul says, let them be accursed if they're going to add on to the finished work of Jesus. So Paul is going to make a defense of the Gospel in this great little letter Paul says, Jesus Christ is all you need. Jesus Christ is all you need forever. Amen? Jesus Christ is all you need. I love that. You don't need religious legalism. You don't need higher knowledge. You don't need mystical experiences. All you need is a real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. No religious add-ons are needed. Verse 1 and 2. Paul says... Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul uh, puts his credentials on display here. Why does Paul have the credentials to speak to the uh, Colossians about this matter? What does he say there in verse 1? He says, I'm an apostle of Christ. How did, how did Paul become an apostle of Christ? How did that happen? Did, did Paul go looking for, for Christ? Or did Christ come looking for him? What happened on the road to Damascus? Christ invaded the life of Paul. And I like how he says it. I am an apostle by the will of God. It's not a job I applied for. I didn't interview for it. I, didn't e I wasn't even looking for it. But God came to me. And I'm an apostle by His will. These are the credentials of 
the Apostle Paul. You've got to love them. You've got to love them. I'm an apostle by the will of God. Verse, verse 2, did you notice how Paul addresses the Colossae Christians? He calls them saints. He calls them saints. And this is a, a biblical term applied to all genuine believers. You know this, right? It's not some super-duper club, uh, super-duper Christian club. That's not what it is. The Bible always uses this term in the same way. It's talking about true believers. So if you're a true believer, if you're in Christ, the Bible calls you a saint. I know there's confusion about that, but that's just simply what the Bible teaches. It's not some super-duper Christian club. If you are born again, if you belong to Christ, the Bible says you are a saint. Also there in verse 2, did you notice, Paul says the Colossians, they are faithful brethren. They are faithful brethren. So what does that mean? Clearly, it means that they are doing what Paul had told Timothy to do. They are laying hold of the eternal life to which they were called. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. You're going to love this, I think. He calls, he calls them stalwart followers of Jesus. Stalwart followers of Jesus. And this is my sermon. I'm calling you to the same thing, to be a stalwart follower of Jesus. What does it mean to be stalwart? I looked it up in the dictionary. What does it mean? To be strong. Are you a strong Christian friend? Are you strong in the world? Are you strong when the, when the hard thing comes? Are you strong? Are you stout? Or can you be blown over by the smallest of breeze in your life? Or do you stand on the rock? I think that's what he means when he's talking about stalwart followers of Jesus. They're sturdy. They're tenacious. They're tough. They're brave. They're bold. They're courageous. They're fearless. They're heroic. I'm calling you to that. Every time you come in here, I call you to that, don't I? Don't you get tired of me preaching this? <laughs> but listen, man, I'm always calling you to live it big. You've got today. That's all you got. You might have tomorrow. Maybe not. Friends, don't waste your time. Don't waste your life as John Piper. Don't waste your life living it small. God expects His children to live a God-sized life because that's the size life He has given. He has given to us. These men and women, uh, they were faithful. They were faithful, brethren. They took their Christianity serious. It wasn't just part of their life. It was their whole life. It wasn't just some little segment of their life. It was their life. Don't you love that? That's what God calls us to. To borrow C.S. Lewis's imagery, they were statues that have come to life and they're never going to look back. They're never going back to the old way. They're going to live this life that God has called them to. No more conformity with the world. No more laying up treasures uh, upon the earth. No more playing religion. Their lives screamed and shouted just like the, Hebrew 11, the men and women of Hebrews 11. I love this God. And I'm going to magnify this God in the few moments I have left on the planet. That's really the job description of every Christian. I love Him and I'm going to magnify Him every single day. It's really simple. Christianity's always been simple. It's always been really, really simple. Paul says they are stalwart followers of Jesus. You know, they don't live by the world's rules anymore. They live by God's rules. And this is the word I'm going to probably repeat to you several different times. They are conspicuous Christians. 
And, and, and I know I've called you to, to this before, but I'm, that's what I'm calling you to, to be conspicuous. To be conspicuous in your family, to be conspicuous in your job, to be conspicuous in your school, to be conspicuous in your neighborhood, to be a conspicuous Christian. Everybody knows. Everybody knows you're a Christian because of the way you live. You're a stalwart follower of Jesus. Look at verse 3 and 4. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love with which you, uh, which you have for all the saints. There it is again. Paul's talking about their faith again. He mentions their faith again. It's Hebrews 11 faith. It's the real deal. <laughs> it's the real deal. They weren't just churchgoers. They were, what did we learn in James? What are we supposed to be? Anybody remember? Doers. doers. They're not just churchgoers. They're word doers. Again, that's on the resume, or pardon me, the job description of every true Christian. Paul says, hey, we've heard about your faith. It's not just something they, they, they came to church on Sunday and, and heard a sermon on and sang about. It's something they lived in the world. Paul says, I've heard about it. It's conspicuous. I hear how you live, your faith in Christ. You've got to love that. He says, I hear how you live it Monday through Saturday. And I told the guys down in Doha, I can't remember if I told you this last week or not, it doesn't matter. That's what happens when you turn 55, you know? <laughs> Forget stuff. Well, I'm almost there anyway. But I told him, I said, you know, faith is like the wind. It's like the wind. You can't see it. It's invisible, right? It's invisible. It's invisible. But you can see what? You can see the effect of the wind. If the wind is blowing... You can see its effect. And what I want to say to you, Christian, if the wind is blowing in your life, everyone around you will feel the breeze. Everyone around you will feel that breeze. If your faith is genuine, you're not a secret agent, Christian. There's no such thing as that. There's no such thing as a secret agent, Christian. If you're, if you really believe, if you're a stalwart follower of Jesus, everyone in your orbit will be feeling the breeze. If the wind is blowing... They will feel the breeze. Verse 4, Paul, Paul tells the Colossians, he says, I've heard about your faith. And then he says this, and I've heard about your love that you have for all the saints. What did we talk about last week? This love that Jesus calls us to. What kind of love does he call us to? Jesus says, uh, how does he say it over in John 13, 34 and 35? You are to love one another even as I have loved you. By this all men will know you are mine the way you love one another. Paul says, I've heard about your love. Isn't this awesome? He says, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love. Friends, this, this is the highest compliment that can be pay, paid to a church or to a believer. Paul says, I've heard about that. Actually, he says the same thing again down in verse 8. If you look there, he says the same thing. These guys were living the gospel. They were laying hold. Don't you love it? They were laying hold. Paul says, I've heard about it. I've heard how you really live your faith in the world. I hear how you love the, the, the brethren in the body. I've heard about it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's what we talked about last week. And I've got to quote 1 John 3.16 again. God says, we know love by this, that He 
Jesus laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We talked about it several times. This is not so much a call to to martyrdom. This is a call for you and I to lay our lives down in the body for the brethren. That's what, again, that's just another elementary bullet point on the job description of being a Christian, loving the brethren. When the phone rings at 3 a.m., either don't answer it, which is my new policy, or be ready to go love and serve your brother. Amen? You love and serve your brother. I mean, it's supposed to be a reflex for us. I know in our fallen sinful nature, it's not as much of a reflex as maybe we would like. But friends, that's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. We're called to love and serve. Conspicuous love. Conspicuous faith. Conspicuous love. It's real simple. Paul says, I've heard about this. Your, your, your faith is conspicuous and your love is conspicuous. You know, we talked about this last week, 1 Corinthians 13. God says, abide in faith, hope, and love. These three, well, Paul's already mentioned faith and love. Guess what? He's going to mention the third one. He's going to mention hope. He says, I've heard about your hope as well. Look at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. These, these Colossians were living textbook Christianity. Faith, hope, and love. Textbook. Textbook Christianity. They weren't confused with all the religious dogma and jargon. They just got down to business. Faith, hope, and love. That's what I'm calling you to, Christian friend, tonight. They were living their faith. They were loving the brethren. Why? What was their fuel for this kind of life? We've talked about this many times. What was their fuel for this kind of life? Their hope in heaven. Their hope in heaven was their fuel. Not to be seen of men, not to be spoken well of, uh, in the body uh, by men. Their fuel was heaven because they really believed the promise of God. They really believed the whole thing about reward. They really believed it. And so they lived like that. They lived like that. They were pointing at the Bema Seat. We talked about it five weeks ago. I challenge you to live 2010 pointing at the Bema Seat. Friends, you just need to write it on your office wall or in your bedroom when you wake up. Point at the Bema Seat today. Point at it when I stand before my awesome Savior God and give an account. And you want to hear those beautiful words. Well done, right? Point at the Bema Seat. That's what these Colossians were doing. They were building their lives around the reality of God's promised reward. I love this. Their worldview was shaped by their... Anyone, can anyone guess? It's so clever. Their heaven view. Their worldview was shaped and dominated by their heaven view. Not just a little bit. It was dominated. The way they prosecuted life was dominated by their view uh, of the promises of God and the heaven that they look forward to. They were living from God's perspective and not from the world's perspective. God expects His people to live in such a way that they are preoccupied with heaven. And I want to ask you, you don't have to 
You don't have to raise your hand or anything. But are you preoccupied with heaven? Are you preoccupied with it? Friends, we're supposed to be. We did that series on heaven uh, sometime. I guess it was early last year. I don't recall now. God really means for His people to be jazzed about it and to live like they believe it and, and expecting the reward that God promises. Man, this is, this is life-changing if we get this in our thinking. It's life-changing to be preoccupied with heaven. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases Hebrews uh, 12 too. You, you know that great text, but listen to how uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. He says, we're to never lose sight of where we're headed. Have any of you lost sight of where you're supposed to be headed? He says, we never lose sight of it. We, uh, which is that exhilarating finish in and with God. I love that. That exhilarating finish in and with God. That's another bullet point on the job description of a Christian. We live for the Bema seat. We're pointing at the Bema seat. You know, that's how the men and women of Hebrews 11 lived. That's, that's what fueled their risk-taking lives. Uh, verse 10 of Hebrews 11, they were looking for the city of God. Verse 13, they confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Verse 16 of Hebrews 11, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. They were fueled by the reality of heaven. And I just want to ask you, Christian, is that a reality for you? Is that a major motivation in your life? Looking at the beam of seat and living for that day that you'll stand before Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Hebrews Hebrews chapter 11. You say, Jim, you talk about Hebrews chapter 11 a lot. I know. Because we're supposed to be saved by faith and here's what faith looks like. I mean, arguably it's the most important chapter in the Bible. Listen to how Moses lived his life. It's what biblical hope looks like. It's a conspicuous hope. Listen to this. Hebrews 11 verse 24. By faith... Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 25. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Verse 26. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was what? Someone tell me. He was what? Man, he turned his back on all the luxury, power, prestige, and comfort and ease of Egypt. He was a prince. <coughs> Moses said, that's nothing compared to what? God. Nothing. It's nothing compared to God. He was looking for the reward. And what, what is the reward of every Christian? And I love the way the King James says this in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter, I think it's 15. What does God say to Abraham. He says, I'm your reward. I am. I'm your reward. Yes, there will be uh, other rewards in heaven. We understand that. But preeminently, God is our, God is our reward. Look, look at verse 27 of Hebrews 11. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Moses was looking at Moses was looking at the Bema seat. You remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. These momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look at the things which are seen, 
but we don't look at those things, but the things which are not seen. Paul says, man, I can endure anything here because I've seen Christ and He's awesome. I love this awesome God. I'm going to give myself to Him. I'm going to pour my life out for Him. He's worthy. He's worthy. I love this. Moses' worldview was dominated by his heaven view. Moses lived a large, risk-taking, never-look-back kind of faith because God was more valuable to him than anything on this planet. God was more valuable to him than anything. He would have understood what Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Listen, friends, if you ever get to where that's a reality in your life, <laughs> you're free. You're free to live your Christianity huge. That's when you're free. When to live as Christ, to die as King. When you really have processed that through your heart and you really believe that, without any, without any shadow of a doubt, you know that to live as Jesus, to magnify Jesus, and to die would be gain. When you know that, you're free. You're, yeah, you're free to be a Hebrews 11 Christian. You're free to do that. And you remember what God says about Hebrews 11 Christians? You remember what He says? He says, I'm not ashamed, I'm not ashamed to be their God. I'm not ashamed to be their God. And Paul says here in verse 5, he says, you know, you've heard these things in the word of truth, the gospel. You remember what Paul says in Romans 1.16? He says that uh, uh, the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. And that, in effect, is what Paul is saying to us in these first eight verses of Colossians. He's saying, I know the gospel is real to you. I see it in your life. I see the power of it in your life. I see the faith in your life. I see you loving one another. And I see that hope that you have, that hope that's set before you. You know, we learned what real faith in is in James chapter 1 and chapter 2. You say, well, Jim, you, you bring up Hebrews 11 a lot and you bring up James chapter 2 a lot. I know I do. There's so much false teaching out there in what is called the modern church. You know, it's just, um, yeah, I, assent, I mentally assent to the historical facts of Jesus and I did an ordinance. That makes me a Christian. Wrong. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. We're saved by faith. God tells us what real faith looks like. I, always, I talk a lot about it, I know. It's because I don't want you to be confused about what biblical faith really is. God says real faith, it doesn't just hear and do nothing. God says, what kind of, God says that's a deluded faith. And God says uh, real faith doesn't just talk about it and do nothing. God says that's dead faith. So there's, there's a kind of faith that's propagated in what is called the modern church that is false and does not save. Yeah, I talk about it a lot. There's an urgent need to talk about it a lot. Because biblical faith is Hebrews 11 faith. It's Hebrews 11 faith. Look at verse 6 and we'll, we'll try to finish up here pretty quick. Verse 6 of Colossians. I'm back in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 6. He says, this gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it. 
and understood the grace of God in truth. What does the real gospel always do in a real believer's life? What does it say right there in verse 6? What does it say? Constantly bears fruit. You may remember that great Sarah Grove song that we used when we were in James chapter 2. She said, man, something's changed in me. And it was all spilling out. You remember that great, that great song? It was just all spilling out. And that's what happens in, in the believer's life. It just all spills out. You can't help it. It just spills out. If it's real, it spills out. It spills out. And this is a pervasive theme of Jesus and many of the metaphors He used in talking about true conversion. You remember that parable of the soils? And I'm going to turn real quick. You can go there with me if you'd like. Parable of the soils over in Matthew 13. You know, Jesus is, is talking, he's giving them a parable here. He said, there's hard soil, there's rocky soil, there's thorny soil, and, uh, and, uh, and then there's, there is good soil. Listen to what Jesus, how he defines the parable. Matthew 13, verse 18, Jesus says, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand that the evil one comes and snatches away that, has, that which has been sown in the heart, that is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Verse 20. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky place. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Man, he looks like a Christian, right? It looks real in his life. Verse 21. Yet, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. See what Jesus is saying? Verse 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word out, and it becomes unfruitful. So we th see the first three soils, they're all unfruitful, right? Then there's the good soil. Listen to Jesus. Verse 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it and who indeed bear, he bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Fruit is always the sign of life within the plant or the vine or the tree. It's the same thing in a Christian. Fruit is always the sign of the born again life. So in Paul's opening comments to the Colossians, He's commending them for really living the gospel. They're living their faith. They're doing love. And they live like they're pointing at the Bema seat. Friends, this is <laughs> it's Christianity. That's what Christianity is supposed to look like. It's conspicuous. It's not dead, rote, obligatory, perfunctory religion. Real Christianity has never been that. It's living, breathing, laboring, serving, loving uh, Christianity. That's what it is. So, when someone asks you, what is this book about? There are many good answers. There are many very good answers. But one answer I want to, that I hope always comes to your mind is, as Don has taught us tonight, it's about life. We're not talking about brainwaves and a pulse. We're talking about that born-again life. That life of God that only He can give. I like, the, again, the Lewis imagery. Life so vibrant that by comparison, uh, unbelievers look like dead stones. I love, I love the imagery there. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life 
and that you might have it abundantly. And I believe that's what Paul is describing here in the opening verses of Colossians. A life so meaningful and significant that it impacts the far side of eternity. You ever think about it like that? A life so meaningful and significant that it impacts the far side of eternity. Friends, that's that's the kind of life that God is calling us to. And that's the kind of life we live when we live that faith. We do that love. We allow the Holy Spirit to bring forth fruit from our lives. It's being a stalwart follower of Jesus that conspicuously incarnates the Word of God. A life that really does faith, it really does love, it really has hope, and it really bears fruit. It's what I'm calling you to tonight, Christian friend. It's conspicuous Christianity. That's what I'm calling you to. Let's pray together. Awesome God, thank you for this great text. Thank you that you have, in Paul's introduction, just summarized the gospel for us. Thank you that you've given us our job description. We don't need to be confused. We just need to live our faith. Live it like our God's really God. And like every word He speaks matters. Father, we we fail and we struggle and we fall and we know we don't live like we should many, many times, but your word tells us that You are always ready to forgive, always ready to wash us clean as we come and confess our sin. You're not preaching sinless perfection here, but you are challenging us. You are challenging us when we fall to get up, to get up and live at large. And if we fall again, to get up, to get up and live at large for the glory of Jesus. Oh Lord, I pray that we would get this message I pray that we'd be serious about living our faith. We'd be serious about loving the brethren. And that our life would be built around the reality of the Bema seat. That day that we look Jesus in the eye. Oh Lord, make these things real to us in our heart. Help us to be a faithful people. Help us to be a courageous and a fearless people. Because our God is God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn back to pray When the darkness closes in, Lord Still I will say Blessed be the name of the Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. Go be conspicuous. God bless. Ciao.